And, and so oftentimes when, when we think of you know, change in the world, and particularly with this uh, political cycle, we hear a lot of talk about either kind of going forward into a new day or recapturing what was great about us in the past, um, and all these kind of big picture things that are going to happen. And we start to think that we can see those things happen without some kind of change happening in us. And what Jesus says to us is that is impossible. Because unless the king comes home to reside in you, you will not be an agent of change in the world. And that's the reason why we see so much talk about there being change and seeing a better society. And yet we never seem to get it, right? We always seem two steps away from it. Every time we move forward, it seems like something pulls us back. And there's a reason to that. It's because it's... In order for any of this to happen, God has to do something in you before he can do something through you. And we, we say that a lot, but that's important to get. God has to do something in us in order to do something through us. And so how do you become a person where this happens in you? And the answer is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has to do a work in you. You have to have a, a life-altering soul-transforming experience of God as a real person coming into your heart, coming into your life, changing you from the inside out. Because if that does not happen, you will not see change externally. In your relationships, in your work environment, in your neighborhood, in this world. It starts with us. And so there's a lot of places that we could look at what it looks like to, to have this kind of encounter with God One of the best, though, is from Isaiah 6. And so that's where we're going to look today. Um, There's an encounter that Isaiah, who is a prophet in Israel, has with God, and it alters his life forever. And so we're going to read his story and kind of pick up uh, what he has to teach us. So this is going to be on page 477 in the Bibles that you guys have under the seat. So if you want to read along, you can. We're going to have some of the verses up here, but not all of them. So... Isaiah 6, we're going to start in verse 1 and go to verse 13. This is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried out. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go and tell this to the people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see 
with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. How would you like that job description? And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. It's a pretty amazing uh, encounter, right? Not sure all of us would be comfortable with this kind of encounter with God, uh, but it's an encounter nonetheless. And it shows us what it looks like to have our lives rearranged when we come into contact with God. And what we find out first is that when when Isaiah comes into the temple, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And then through this encounter, God sends shockwaves through Isaiah's entire life. Everything is turned upside down for him. This is a watershed moment in his life. And it begins with this vision that he gets of the Lord high and and seated on a throne, the train of his robe filled the temple. And the, the seraphim, these angels, are calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the earth is full of his glory, and the, the temple fills with smoke, and there's an earthquake. I mean, can you imagine coming into this room and hearing and experiencing that? That would shake you, right? That would shake you for a long time. Um, And and here's the thing, it begins with Isaiah seeing God's glory. The word glory in Hebrew means to be permanent, to be important, to be significant. We've talked about this before, but the, the word glory means to have weight, to be weighty. And so God's glory, in a sense, means His weightiness. It's it's when you compare God to everything else, nothing else has the permanence, the importance, the significance, the weight of God. We, we used this analogy before where we talked about the sun and the stars and which one has more matter to it? Which one has more mass? The sun does. And you know that it has more mass because the, the planets revolve around it rather than the other way around. So, I mean, to, to say it another way, it matters more. And in the same way, for God to be glorious means that He has weight or matter to Him. Another analogy that you could use is what what happens when you drop a rock into water? Yeah, you you get a splash, right? You get ripples. The water moves. And the water... The the reason for that is the water gets out of the way because it can't stand up to the glory of the rock. The rock has more glory in the water. So if you increase the size of the rock, what happens to the water? Yeah. You might get little ripples at first with a small rock. You might get a big splash. When I was, we were at a lake over the summer and, and uh, Caleb was throwing like the biggest rocks he could find. Like, so he's carrying these huge rocks over as big as he could find and just plunking them down in the water. And the reason that that was fun is because it was exciting for him to watch the water part for the glory of the rock. That was what was going on. In fact, if you keep increasing the size of the rock and you had some, a rock, oh, let's say 100 yards wide, what would happen? It's not just a ripple anymore, right? 
It's a tsunami. The water parts because of the glory of the rock. So what happens when God in all of His glory come rushing into Isaiah's life when literally the, the Lord of glory is, is dropped down into the water of Isaiah's life? Isaiah's life gives way to him. The Lord comes in and He changes everything. Changes Isaiah's view of what God is like. He changes God's, his view of himself. He changes his view of the world. Absolutely everything has changed. The impact of meeting the glorious God has implications and ripples everywhere. There's a tsunami in his life, right? See, and throughout God's story, if you read in several places, everywhere that God shows up, what happens? Every time his glory is shown, do you know what happens? As a result, just physically, yeah, yeah, so they're unable to speak, they fall down on their faces, and what happens to the earth itself? There's an earthquake. Every time the, the glory of the Lord is shown, there's an earthquake. I mean, look, Exodus 19 in Mount Sinai, the mountains themselves tremble. Acts 2 at Pentecost, when the Spirit of the Lord comes down into the room, the room shakes. It happens every time the, the Lord shows up. I love the way that Psalm 104, verse 31 and 32 put it. May the, Lord, may, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles. He who touches the mountains and they smoke. That's glory. See, compared to God, everything else has absolutely no weight. It's like... It's like us as human beings compared to the sun. And when God shows up, everything shakes. That's how actually you know the difference between hearing about God as an idea, maybe even believing that there is a God who exists, and knowing and experiencing God as a person. Because when you experience Him as a person, He makes His glory known to you. He becomes glorious. He becomes weighty. You move rather than Him. See, before this, Isaiah believed God. It's not like he goes into the temple and goes, wow, there really is a God. No, he goes into the temple, but God was an idea to him before, and now God is a reality. See, when God is an idea to you, He's lighter than you. And the way, the way that you know that He's lighter than you is that you end up shaping Him rather than He shaping you. He fits neatly into your patterns, into your agenda, into your comfort. In other words, if, if something in your life is not rippling, is not shaking, if there is not a tsunami somewhere in your life, if things haven't radically shifted and made way for His glory, you have not met Him yet. You haven't met Him yet. He's still an idea to you. You may believe He exists, but you have not encountered Him yet. Not, not the God of glory. See, when God is glorious, it means that He gets to shape you. He gets to shape your beliefs. He gets to shape what, what you, your life is about. He gets to shape your agenda and your plans. See, many people are religious. Many people pray and they go to church 
and they read their Bibles, but the reason that they're doing all of those religious activities is so that they can get God to bless and honor their plans and their agendas. And what you find here, when Isaiah walks into the temple and sees the God of glory, is that you realize it doesn't work that way. God is not our personal assistant. We can't make him bless our plans and our agenda. In fact, when you get into the presence of the real God, the ripples of change happen everywhere. Things that you thought you believed now suddenly become different. Things that you used to value, you don't value. Now you value a whole bunch of new things that you never valued before. The way that you handle your money and your time, the way that you set your priorities, all those things get shifted around and changed in ways that you could have never imagined before. See, rather than fitting God into your agenda, He becomes your agenda. You revolve around Him. You don't ask Him to come and bless your comfort or your safety or your prosperity, but you come to Him and you go, how can I make my life about what you're about? See, and I've, I've had the privilege of um, discipling quite a few people along the way who are either just coming to faith in Jesus or have recently come to faith in Jesus and they're kind of new to this thing. And there's a pattern that I've picked up on almost every time when someone begins to understand the good news of the gospel, when they start to encounter the real God. And they might have been a religious person for decade after decade after decade, but a moment in time happens and they come to see God for who he is. And inevitably what happens in their life is that they begin to say, how can I use my life for this God? Because he matters more. And so you you start to say, I used to want people to see me. I don't want people to see me anymore. I want people to see him through me. How do I do that? How do I grow in that? How how can I work alongside of him in terms of what he's doing in the world? I want my life to be about his agenda. It happens every time someone encounters the Lord of glory. Why? Because he's glorious. That's why. See, every person who's met God has him go from an idea to a reality. And when he does that, everything changes. Has that happened to you? Has he done that to you? Now, you might go, I've never had an encounter like Isaiah. Most of us haven't. That's okay. Everyone's encounter looks differently. Mine was a little bit more abrupt. I know the date and time that it happened. It was 2 a.m. on March 1st, 2001. My wife, however, she doesn't know the date or the time, but there was a moment in time when it happened for her. She grew into it slowly over time until one day, all of a sudden it dawned on her, God is bigger than I ever imagined him before. It happens in different ways, but it happens nonetheless. And when it does happen, when we do see God for who he is, when we have a an encounter with him, it results in a number of of ripples in our life. You could call them tsunamis even. There are changes that happen. And so I want to just briefly go through some of the changes that Isaiah shows us. Because he shows us that he has a change in terms of what he values. He has a change in his own humility. He has a change in terms of being cleansed. And he has a change in terms of where he's being sent. So what he values his humility, his cleansing, 
and is sending. So it starts out when, when Isaiah says this. He sees the, the Lord in verse 1 and verse 3 and 4. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of His robe filled the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. He gets this picture of what God is like. And, and the first result is that Isaiah begins to value new things. He has a radical shifting in terms of what he values. Um, the word holy might be kind of uh, um, confusing to us. So when the, the seraphim say, holy, 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 um, it, they repeat themselves three times. And, and that's no accident. It's not just that they can't think of better words to say. Um, they're, they're, they're emphasizing an attribute of God by repeating it over and over and over again. Um, and why is that? Because holiness is, is to be infinitely set apart from every other thing. It's to be beautiful and valuable just for who you are. I mean, a good um, example of that would be why are diamonds so valuable? Why do we put... They're not... I mean, they're just rocks in the ground, Right? But why are they more valuable than all the other rocks around them? There are fewer of them. They're more rare. The rarer something is, the more its value increases. So, so diamonds are more ra- valuable than rocks because you have to dig through two miles of rock to get to one diamond. It's rare, and because it's rare, it's valuable. Now, apply that same logic to what the seraphim are saying about God. They're saying He is rare, rare, rare. He is valuable upon valuable upon value. Why is He that way? Because there's no one like Him. I mean, there's just been a report um, recently that there are way more galaxies than we ever knew. So like even when Pete was talking about this back in the summer, about the number of galaxies like per person, there, there are ten times that now that we know of. It's crazy to think of the number of galaxies, the number of stars, and the number of planets that are all whizzing around the universe. And there's one Lord God who made it by the power of His Word. The, the Bible actually says that Jesus upholds the universe by His pinky. By just the whisper of His lips. There is no one like Him. And because there's no one like Him, He is valuable. He is beautiful. And, and the seraphim, when, when they're talking about God, they're not just, it's not just they say it once and then they kind of get over it. They can't get over it. They're, they're so enamored with who God is that they say it constantly. They can't believe how wonderful He is, how beautiful He is, how rare He is. And so they, they, they value Him and they love Him just for who He is. Now, do you value God for who He is? Here's how you know. Um, imagine that you were going to get married to someone and uh, you're in a relationship with them and you find out that really the reason that they're in the relationship with you is because they, you're rich and they want your money. And you think, well, maybe they'll change. I'll go ahead with it. And you end up getting married to them and they get married to you and, and um, things are going okay for a while until they realize that they can never, ever, ever get your money from you. 
And when they come to that realization that all they get out of the relationship is you and not your money, they leave. How do you feel? How would you feel? Used. Rejected. Devalued. Like you were a means to an end, right? They weren't interested in you. They were only interested in what you could give them. Now, how do you think God feels when we say something like, you know, I used to believe in God. I was in a relationship with Him. And I asked him for all kinds of things, and he chose not to give them to me. He let me down. He didn't give me what I most wanted. And so I haven't spoken to him in a while. In other words, I got into the marriage with him because I was after his treasure, and when he didn't give it to me, I left. See, it means that he was a means to an end rather than an end in himself. But for the seraphim, they aren't praising God day and night because of what they can get out of Him. They're not doing it because they want power or comfort or significance or security or control or or wealth. They're simply doing it because of who He is, because they find Him valuable, because they find Him beautiful, because they find Him holy. See, when you experience God, you see His holiness and you know that you have seen His holiness. You know that you've experienced Him because you begin to value Him above other things. You begin to want Him above other things. You begin to say crazy things like, I don't care if I have the riches of the world as long as I know that I have you. I will do anything, go anywhere for you, even if it means poverty the rest of my life. Now, to the world, that looks crazy, but when you have an encounter of holiness, you go, that makes perfect sense because he is far more valuable than anything else. And then the very next thing that happens to Isaiah after he starts to value who God is, he realizes how humble he is. As soon as God becomes big, what happens to Isaiah? He becomes small. And so Isaiah verse 5 says, Woe to me! I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do you realize, as a prophet, he's pronouncing a curse on himself? He's saying, I don't deserve to live. I'm ruined. I'm undone. Now, why in the world would Isaiah say something like that? I mean, if God is valuable, why does he feel so unvaluable at this moment in time. It's because any time that you're in the presence of real greatness, it has a way of humbling you, doesn't it? I remember, um, I mean, in high school, I was a pretty good soccer player. I wasn't fantastic, but I was pretty good. Uh, I played uh, a forward wing position. I was uh, one of the top scorers in our league in western Massachusetts. I thought I was pretty good at the time. Um, and I was looking at a number of different schools uh, to, for college, and one of the schools that I went to go see was Philadelphia University, where I ended up going to school. And I, I knew that it was at the top of my list because it had everything that, uh, else that I, I wanted to, to go for. It was in a great location, and, and I just knew that it, it, and the one thing that was um, not fitting into place was that their soccer program was great. And by great, I mean Division One. 
And so I, in my naiveness, I thought, well, I'm going to go and visit them in the spring. And my parents took me down, and we took a tour of the campus. And the soccer team happened to be practicing that day on the quad. And so I thought, great, this will be a great chance for me to go and see my future team. <laughs> so I go over to the quad, and I watch them play. And five minutes in, I say, woe to me. <laughs> yeah. Because, why? Because I'm realizing that, that the level of play that I was used to was such a small pond compared to what I was seeing on the, on the field that day. I knew I was not good enough, not even for the practice squad. Now, now let me just say this. If that's true just of human greatness, when you compare yourself to someone else and you realize that they are much better at your best skill, how do you feel? You feel humbled, right? You, you feel, woe is me. I, I, I thought I was somebody and it turns out that I'm nothing compared to this person who's way better than even my best day. Now, if that's true of human beings, how much more is it true when you're in the presence of the one who is holy, 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 the maker of heaven and earth who upholds the universe by the power of a whisper? Are you picking up what Isaiah's feeling right now? He's undone. See, and this is, this is ironic because Isaiah, Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah was part of the royal family, that his father was the, the king's brother, which made Isaiah be a, a pretty privileged guy. And not only that, but Isaiah was one of the most up-and-coming young talents in the nation. I mean, he had the gift of communication. He's kind of the, the kid with the golden tongue. And so he would have been seen as someone who had great value, great worth in the society. And not only that, but think of what's happening uh, politically, culturally around Isaiah's day. It was the year that King Uzziah died. Um, King Uzziah had been sick and secluded for years, and now he dies, and literally everything is falling apart in their nation. And people are, are asking the question, who in the world is going to fix this? Who's going to lead us out? Who has the best policy for the job? Who has the best temperament? Have we heard anything like that recently? See, it would have been easy for Isaiah, being this young, talented, privileged guy, this great communicator with royal blood, to go, you know what, I think I can do something about this. Maybe I'm the guy for the job. I, I think I know what's wrong with this country. I think maybe if I had the power, I would be able to fix all of it. Maybe I'm the only one that could do it. See, Isaiah finds himself in the presence of a holy God, the God of glory, and he realizes as he looks into the face of God and sees how much greater God is, how much more powerful, how much more wise, how much more gracious, how much more in every way than Isaiah could ever possibly be, and he realizes, I'm what's wrong with the world. I'm the problem. All of my people are unclean. And I'm as bad as the rest. Even my lips, even the very, very best part of me is unclean and selfish and twisted and distorted and rebellious against this God. I've got nothing in, in comparison with who He is. See, every time someone comes face to face with God, they are completely humbled 
face down on the ground. It happened to Job. It happened to Moses. It happened to Peter. It's happening to Isaiah. Why? Because when you're confronted with God as he is, not just a figment of your imagination, not just an idea that you've created in your head, you see just how far short of him you fall. Somewhere along the line, you say, woe is me. See, just like me with the soccer team, I knew that I couldn't match up. I knew that I should. I knew that I wanted to, but it was impossible. Not with a thousand lifetimes could I be as talented as even their worst player. And and that's a little bit of what God's trying to communicate in Romans 3, verse 22 and 23. Paul says this, There is no difference between Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter what your religious background has been or how good of a person you've been or how much you've tried or how many rituals or, or, or traditions you've been through. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. See, here's how you know that you know you've experienced the real God and had Him begin to work in your heart. You believe you're a sinner. You believe that you fall short. You know you should be like God. You know that you should have his characteristics. You know you should be as loving as he is and as wise as he is and as patient as he is. But you're not, and neither am I. And what it's saying is that none of us will match up to him, not in a thousand lifetimes. And you begin to realize, I'm more selfish, more impatient, more unloving, more greedy, more afraid of being out of control, more suspicious of people that aren't like me than I ever realized that I was before. I need someone to come and save me from this condition and to make me new because I can't do it myself. See, if you say something along the lines of, well, I don't really believe in sin. I just think you should try to be a good person and if you're a good enough person, then everything will work out in the end. You haven't been near the real God then. Because if you were near the real God, you would say, woe is me. See, one of my very last attempts, I've told this story before, of of trying to fix myself before coming to faith in Jesus was trying to fix other people. I had a friend that was in desperate need of help And I thought, well, if I could just fix her, then maybe God will see that I'm okay. It was my last attempt at withholding from the grace of God, withholding from the God of glory. You could come in and say, no, 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 you don't need to do anything. I can save you anyway. See, if we haven't experienced that, then all of us are trying to hold him at bay somehow, through some means, by being some kind of person. When we've experienced him, we are humbled. We realize that we have no cards left to put on the table. We have nothing in our moral, spiritual bank account to transfer to his account. We, We are bankrupt. But here's the thing. As soon as you realize that you're bankrupt, you get something in return. See, Isaiah experiences radical humility, but at the very same time, he he experiences a radical cleansing, a radical rebirth. Because the moment that Isaiah confesses his sin, God begins to actually make him new. In verses 6 and 7, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And with it, he touched my mouth and he said, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, I don't know if, you're, if you can picture this, but I want you to imagine, like, when we're talking about seraphim, we're not talking about like little chubby angel babies, okay? <laughs> this is a warrior of light. This is someone with six wings, huge muscles, flying through the air directly at you with a burning coal in his hand. How are you feeling at this moment in time? (laughs) You're not like, aww. (laughs) You're trying to hide. You're trying to get out of the way. And that's exactly what Isaiah would have thought. In fact, what Isaiah would have thought is, I am sinful I've confessed it to God, and now God is going to wipe me out. He is sending his angel. I am goner. I'm done for. This is it. This is how it all comes to an end. Now, why in the world would would Isaiah believe that? Apart from the intimidation factor, he would believe that because every time the Bible talks about the fire of God, it represents God's justified wrath against evil and sin. We're not talking about a a fire that warms you up. We're talking about a fire that destroys you. Isaiah, in fact, uh, talks about this same fire later on in in his book in Isaiah 30, verse 27. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning sweetness and a dense cloud of smoke. His lips are full of love and his tongue is a warming fire. Is that what it says? No? That's not what you're... Oh, okay. All right. With burning anger and dense cloud of smoke, his lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. See, God isn't coming as a fire to warm you up and make you feel cozy. He's coming to destroy wickedness and evil. He's coming to consume all the brokenness of the world. He's saying, I'm so sick of the way that people have treated one another, the way that they've hated each other, the way that they've pushed down the poor and the marginalized, the way that they haven't cared for those who don't have a voice. I'm so tired of people not bearing my image. I'm coming to consume them. And so when the seraphim come flying at Isaiah with a burning coal so hot that the angel can't even touch it with his hands but has to use tongs, he's going, I'm done for. Uh, this is it. He expected God to wipe him out. But, but here's the thing. What happens instead is that when the fire gets to his lips, the very same lips that confessed his sin, it doesn't, it doesn't consume him. It heals him. It cleanses him. God doesn't judge his guilt. He removes his guilt. He takes his sin away from him. Isn't that amazing? And then the very next thing that you hear Almost instantaneously, verse 8 says, Then I heard a voice saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? (laughs) Talk about a roller coaster of emotions, right? Can you imagine thinking that you're done for, being cleansed, and then suddenly God going, I need someone to help me. Who wants to join me? I mean, all of this happens in one single second. And God says to him, I'm choosing you. I want you to go and represent my name. How, how do you think Isaiah's feeling at this point? Let me just ask you that. 
What do you think is going on in his heart, in his mind? Yeah. Who, me? What else? What's going on for him? Yeah, he's not nearly as good as he thought he was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anything can happen. Hey, it's funny that he goes into the temple thinking he's going to encounter anything but God. <laughs> right? How often do we walk into this room thinking that we're going to encounter our friends, encounter the kids, encounter all these things, and who shows up but the Lord of glory? Should expect the unexpected, right? <laughs> yeah, it's going to take him years to work out the, the, all the, to untangle all the emotions from that one moment in time, right? I mean, imagine feeling simultaneously just completely humbled that you have nothing to offer God and at the very same moment feeling completely valued that He would not choose to wipe you out but to cleanse you, make you whole, and send you out for His name. I mean, how do you leave the room at that point? You, you go, I... I I have nothing to offer, and yet he wants to do everything through me. I, I have no, no standing on my own. I don't deserve to be in his presence, and yet God chose to, to physically cleanse me so that I could even stand in his presence, and not just stand in his presence, but even go and represent him to other people. Yeah. I mean, imagine feeling completely humbled and completely confident all at the same time. I mean, you walk out of the room and you go, I, I, I have no position apart from the position that He gave me. I have no greatness apart from the greatness that He bestowed upon me. I have, I have no message apart from the message that He gave me. I have no power apart from the power that He gives me. It's amazing, right? I mean, it changes you forever. It gives you completely different perspective on what it means to be in relationship with God and what it means to be His agent in the world. See, and and everyone who doesn't know this, who hasn't encountered this kind of of greatness in God, this kind of good news through, through what He's able to do for you, is instead trying to do what Isaiah was doing, which was to earn his identity before God. To try to come to some kind of position of greatness himself. And say, well, if I do this, then God will give me this. See, there's a problem, though, because it, if you, let's say you have certain standards that you're trying to live up to. If you do live up to those standards, inevitably what happens is that you end up looking down on the people that don't live up to your standards. And you become proud and arrogant. And Isaiah's going, I, I can't go there. And then on the other hand, if you don't live up to your standards... You'll be humble, but you'll feel shame and inadequacy all of your life. And Isaiah can't feel that either because God has affirmed him and sent him out new. See, when you've experienced God's grace, you're both humble and confident at the same time. Which means that absolutely nothing can shake you. I mean, so what? I mean, if you experience failure in this life, let's say you go out and you, you, I mean, you really royally mess up. You realize that even though you messed up, your identity is in God's grace over you so that you can face any failure without being destroyed. You go, so what? I mean, the king of glory has most weight in my life 
Who cares if I lost this? Who cares if I made a mistake? Who cares if I messed up? Who cares if people... You might want to atone for those things, but it won't destroy you. See, on the other hand, when you succeed at something, let's say you're a really big success in life, you can have success without feeling superior to anyone because you remember that you're a sinner. That you have no part in God's plan, no place before Him without His grace. So how does this happen? How in the world does God make it so that you can both be humbled because you don't have anything to offer and yet He offers you everything in return? How, how can He cleanse you and make you new and make you, make you unshakable in your, in your life? Many years after this incident, there was another day when the temple shook. There was an earthquake so violent that the veil, the curtain that was in the temple, ripped in two. Do you know what day that was? Good Friday. Matthew 27 says this, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, when he gave up his spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split. See, what was happening? The glory of the Lord was coming. The fire of God was coming. But it wasn't coming to pardon. It was coming to condemn. It was coming to judge See, in the garden the the very night before this all happened, Jesus cried out to God, very similar to the way Isaiah does, I'm coming undone. Woe is me, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. And does an angel come with a burning coal and say, there, there, it'll be better? No. No angel comes. No cleansing happens. Why? Because Jesus becomes the sacrifice on the altar. He, was, he, he came to, to take on the judgment of God. He was condemned with God's wrath so that we could receive His grace. He was shaken by His judgment so that we could be unshakable, so that our sin could be atoned for, so that we could receive a new identity, though we don't deserve it. And here's the thing. If God has done that for you and you've received that in Jesus Christ then you, here's the reality. You won't just serve God to get things from Him anymore. You won't make Him a means to an end because you have all, he, all you really need. You realize that God has given you everything when He gave His Son to you. So instead, you'll serve Him because He's valuable. You'll love Him because of what He did for you, not what He'll do for you. You'll serve Him because you want to know Him and you want to experience Him and you want to delight Him and you want to resemble Him and you want to join Him in what He's doing in the world. You want to be like Isaiah. Is that happening to you? See, if it's happening to you, you know you've experienced this this amazing grace of God. And then the last thing that happens, they're just going to just real briefly, is that Isaiah then gets sent out. Sent out in a radical way. See, and this happens to everyone who experiences God's grace. You're sent out to be part of God's movement in the world that eventually will result in a new heavens and a new earth. And this is what it means to be an agent of gospel change in the world. 
See, you can't get to it apart from God doing it in you. But when He does it in you, you can't stop it from happening through you. Because you have to be part of it. And when you are part of it, this is, this is what you see in Isaiah. He, he becomes dependable and expectant on God. He becomes dependable. He says to God, here am I. Here am I. And you notice, he says that before he realizes what the job description is. I always thought about that. Like, what if he heard all the things that God said about how bad it was going to be? Would he have said it again? And here's what we know, though, about Isaiah. He continues to do the job. God says to him, you need to realize that these people are going to be so hard-hearted that you're going to preach to them for year after year after year, and they will do nothing but tell you, I don't want to hear it anymore. I mean, talk about the toughest mission assignment there ever was. I don't know if I would have this, if I would prove to have the same kind of dependability. And yet Isaiah takes the job. He joins God on the mission in spite of the fact that it will be the hardest thing that Isaiah ever, 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 ever does. See, that's dependability. It's, it's not saying to God, well, I'll fit you in if I have availability. I'll make space if I can find space. I'll change things around if it's easy for me to do so. No, it's, it's saying you're more glorious than I am. You're more weighty. Your mission takes precedent. Your purposes in the world are why you saved me in the first place. I want my life to be about you. Let me just ask you, you, do you try to fit God's plans into your agenda or do you change your plans based on His? I'm, I'm proud, actually, of the fact that when we put out a call to, you know, for, for needs for Haiti, many, many, many of you, I'm so thankful for this, said, I will rearrange my budget to give to people in need because my brothers and sisters in Haiti are hurting. I will change my spending this month so that I can give more to what they need because what they need is more important than what I need. That's, that's being dependable. That's being available to the King of glory. At the same time, when we put a, out a call and said, hey, if anybody wants to join me, you know, to go to Haiti, I'd love to have you come be a part of, of just helping to rebuild and, and just let our brothers and sisters know that they're loved and valued and cared for. And 10 of you stepped forward and said, I'll go. That's amazing, family. I'm so proud of you. It's, I, ten, I mean, nine of you are going with me, and Jen's, we're going to pray for her in a second. She's leading a team to go to the Southern Peninsula on a medical mission. I mean, it's the grace of God that's on us, family. It's just so awesome to see. I mean, I just, the fact that, you know, 410 Bridge would say, they, you know, they look out at all the, the resources and the churches that they have available, the people they have, and they say, I, I want someone from Cultivate to lead because I know that they're going to do an awesome job. I know they're going to dis- depend on the Spirit and be filled by Him and do their best and lead well. That's us, family. That's us. Is that happening for you? Are you, are, are you rearranging your life in other ways for Him? And then expectancy. We, we should be people that are expectant that God is going to work. 
when we're dependable, when we step out, when we say, here am I, send me. We should see, expect to see that the King of glory will bring things glorious into our life and through us to other people. Now you might say, I don't see that here. I mean, it seems like Isaiah gets sent on this assignment where nothing is ever going to go well. In fact, the cities are going to be laid waste. I mean, what, what kind of expectancy is Isaiah to have? Well, look at the last verse. In verse 13, it says, And even though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Now, what in the world is he talking about? God is saying, for the rest of your life, it's going to be bad. You're not going to see much fruit. You're going to think that I'm not available. You're going to think that things aren't going your way. You're going to think maybe you're crazy. Maybe it was a vision. Maybe you, you, you know, ate something you shouldn't have eaten and you're ha- you had this vision in the temple and it didn't really happen. You're going to see the nation get cut down like an orchard. But one day there will be a seed that will rise up anew. See, even when things look like they couldn't get any worse, even when it seems like the world is totally out of control, that I'm nowhere to be found, I will not forget you. I'm doing something new. I'm getting ready to make all things new again. See, if God is real to the degree that He's real to you, that no matter what the circumstances are around you, you will continue to believe in hope and knowledge that He will have His way in the end. Do you believe that, family? Are you being renewed in the confidence that God is going to work in this world? That everything sad is going to come untrue? There are days when I don't believe that so much. There are days when I need God to remind me. And then there are days when I believe it. And on on the days that I believe it, I'm... Asking God, increase these days. I need them. Now we get one of the best reminders that God is faithful to His Word. We get the table. We get the cup. We get the, the wine and the bread, which, which is a remembrance to us that Jesus was faithful to His Word, that He gave up His body for us, that He poured out His blood for us, not just so that we would be cleansed and forgiven and made new today, but that the, these I've heard it said, I love the way this sounds, these are the table scraps of the, the feast that is to come when the new heavens and the new earth make their way here. And so when we come, we're, in a sense we're saying, God, you, like Isaiah, you've cleansed me, and like Isaiah, you've sent me out. And God, I, I, I need that revelation again. I need you to be real to me, not just a figment of my imagination. I need you to be a reality. So let's pray and ask that he would do it. Father, thank you that you...